Welcome to the Smeichel Speaks podcast channel. I'm Joanne Smeichel, and I'm delighted that you tuned in for relevant leadership learning that will help you continue to soar. Enjoy this episode. Good morning. This is a really special episode in the next chapter series. It's really special because it's a heart connection for me. So Corey McCarthy is my guest. He's very dear to me, very, very dear to me. He occupies a special place in my heart. And I am so grateful that he's willing to come and share his next chapter. Welcome, Corey. Thank you, Joanne. Good morning. I invited you because there are a lot of types of next chapters and your story is compelling. It's so different from what my listeners are used to or expect on this podcast channel. So let me tell them a little bit about you and then you can fill in the gaps. Corey is the owner of McCarthy IE. It's a really successful, and I mean really successful, home restoration and improvement business in Buffalo, New York, my hometown. He and his team bring beautiful old homes back to their former glory, but they also create inviting living spaces in all sorts of dwellings. He's done a lot of projects for me, so I can attest to the quality of his work. So enough, enough with my commercial for Corey and McCarthy IE. He's going to tell you a story of missteps, mistakes, redemption, and success. Corey will be on for more than one episode, so you'll have the opportunity to really get to know him. So, Corey, as we start, I want you to talk about where you are today, the business, the community service that you do, Mackenzie, your life. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Um, and thanks for having me on. I, uh, so right now I live about five, two minutes outside of Buffalo in a suburb called Amherst. Um, I'm on my sun porch in my house. My daughter lives with me, Mackenzie. She just, uh, she just left for the day. Uh, we got up together. We had our two dogs running around in the backyard. Our business, uh, my business, uh, we're working on, actually it's, it was the Canadian consulate in Buffalo. Uh, for a number of years and they, they sold it to a family and we're working on that home right now. I'm going to stop there after this uh, interview. Um, let's see what else. Yeah. I, uh, I, I live a pretty content and happy life and in uh, a safe home. And, um, you know, I think I'm going to do some grilling later today. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I have, I have a very, um, I have a life that I, I'm very grateful for. Yeah. And you worked for it. Mm -hmm. You worked for it. So I want to wind back the tape just a little bit to your first chapter of life, your family, your education, and some of the early choices that you made. Tell us okay. a little bit about that. So I, um, well, you, you, you know, better than most because I grew up next to your parents, uh, and next to you. Um, but as a young man, I was really mixed up. I had some, some kind of traumatic or whatever term you want to use, uh, 
occurrences happen at, at a young age. And um, I really didn't know how to internalize that stuff. And I started uh, using marijuana. I, I started skipping out of school and not paying attention. Um, I started selling marijuana and not going to basketball practices. I was talented in, in pretty much anything I put my effort towards. And I, and I just kind of stopped putting my effort towards anything that was really good for me uh, or my future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that was in spite of the fact that you had a two-parent home with parents who mm-hmm. loved you, parents who genuinely cared for you, for you, sewed into you, sent you to private schools, um, mm-hmm. you know, those kinds of things. In spite of that, your choices based on the trauma were choices that were not good for you. Not healthy, um, yeah. not, not, not good for a future. And yeah, I mean, the home... I grew up in a in a beautiful neighborhood in a beautiful home with two parents who I love to this day, um, who I see often. My mother actually spends the night in my house now quite often, um, <laughs> and which is interesting because there was years where we we barely spoke because of my choices, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, what was some of the thinking that you had during that period where your choices were were not? so good the thought patterns yeah i i think about this often um because well i think about it often and a lot of the choices that i made were based off of feeling like there was maybe something wrong with me because of the things that had happened early on um there was no real explanation for them it's kind of like when bad things happen um and you search for answers and I really couldn't come up with any. Um, I didn't feel very good about myself and I can't really put a finger on why, but I also remember at one point kind of when things were really bad for me, um, thinking it hurts so bad to try to do something and fail that it'd be easier to, to not try. Hmm. So to, to not, to, to, to try to excel or to make my parents proud or, you know, maybe to go back to school and sign up and, and then to fail again was, was so damaging that for whatever reason at the time, I remember thinking like, well, I, I just won't try. Like if I don't play the game, I can't lose. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, later on, you look back and, and you think, well, if you don't play, you can't win either. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's an interesting thing when people don't do something because they fear failure. Well, you're you're cutting yourself out of success as well. Yeah. So results of those early choices. Are you comfortable talking about the results? I am. Yeah. I mean, um, mostly because of Google. But uh, (laughs) a lot of my life is pretty trackable. Um, And and, and I hope we we circle back to that because there's there's a real good point and period in that. Uh, But I I ended up I think when I was 13, 14 years old, I wasn't coming home at night. Uh, I would leave for weeks, you know, for up to two weeks, I think, at a time. Um, and my parents didn't know what to do. So 
uh, they put me on a thing called the person in need of supervision. Uh, it was a pins, pins warrant. Pins, yep. And yep, and the county assigned you a probation officer, and that basically started my involvement with the criminal justice system, which lasted another fifteen years, mm-hmm. eighteen years, um, in and out of juvenile detention centers, um, in, in and out of youth rehab facilities and then later in life not having a place to live for periods of time sleeping on uh, my father's porch sleeping on neighbors porches um, and then in my early 20s i uh committed uh, a terrible crime um i was selling drugs and i was um robbing drug dealers and uh i ended up in a committing a violent crime against another person and uh, sentenced to eight and a half years in prison. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was tough. Toughest for you, but tough for your mother, um, mm-hmm. your daughter, for everybody who was in your life. So during that period, the last period of when you were in jail, did you think that you could do something different with your life? Was there ever a point where you said, this isn't working. I got to do something different. Yeah. You know, when I first got incarcerated, um, my mother, uh, came to see me and being a supportive parent said, okay, honey, like you're here, but now's the time to start thinking about what you're going to do when you get out and how you're going to put the pieces together. And at the time, along that line of thought um, that I had internalized was, Mom, the sooner you get used to me being this person, the sooner that this won't hurt you anymore. Because I really believed at that point when I was incarcerated initially that, um, okay, this is the end result of me not giving a F about myself. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is going to be repeated because if you look at the statistics of people who go to prison, usually it's a repeat, um, you know, it's a revolving door. And I think it actually took about four years, Joanne. I was reading, I was doing things, but I was still, I was still using drugs when they were available. I was still, uh, I was still reactionary to other people. Um, and at some point, about four years into the eight-year sentence, um, I don't know that there was a belief that I could do something else, but there was a glimmer of hope. And um, it came from two of my friends came to visit me, two uh, women who I had grown up with and hit, who had both had pretty uh, difficult adolescence along with me. They were making the same choices I, I was. And when they came to see me, they were both sober and they were both really happy Mm -hmm. and I could see it in their, in their eyes. And I could, and I was like, how come, like we played soccer together in a beautiful park in Buffalo and our parents all loved us and you're selling insurance in Maine and you're living in Miami and you're so happy that, and you could come here and visit me and I'm here. Why am I here? And they, very, very simply and not pushy, 
told me, if you don't drink and do drugs, you, you wouldn't be here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And for like the briefest of moments, what came into my mind, because the thing that hurt me the most was not being able to be a real father to my daughter. Mm-hmm. And I was so ashamed of that. And in that moment, seeing these girls was like, well, maybe you can, mm-hmm. maybe you can, maybe you can, and, and you can't, and, and it's somehow, some way, it also was like, well, you can't blame everything else, right? Like you have to try not doing these things first before you can say that like, you're just not a good person or you're not a good dad. Like maybe stop drinking and stop doing drugs before you can say anything definitive about yourself, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that was, you know, there was, there was a multiple turning points, but that was, that was when that was actually father's day, 2007. Um, and I've been sober since that day. Wow. Yeah, that was Father's Day. I could cry thinking about the fact that it was Father's Day. Yeah, especially since Father's Day is coming up in just a couple of weeks. Yeah. And especially since you have, since that time, could get a, 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 a an award, a trophy for the father that you are to your daughter and to other people's kids. So, yeah, that's pretty awesome. So at that moment, it was truly an aha moment. It was truly a revelation from what you just said. But there's something else as we're talking about this. I think it would have been really hard to have the aha moment or the revelation if there hadn't been a person or people there. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, these things don't just happen out of the ether. There has to be somebody or something who can show you Somebody you can look at and say, oh, if they could do it, like you said, one's living in Maine, doing great. One's living in Florida, doing great. If you can look at somebody and say, all right, there's a possibility for me. There is a possibility. Absolutely. Yeah. I think I think you have to have a direction to point, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and you have to, I, I currently keep a full deck of mentors, including you. Right. People who I aspire to be like or people who have things that I want. And I don't mean things as far as belongings, but I mean a life, a sense of peace, a sense of pride, a sense of duty. Like and I try to find those people and and learn as much as I can, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But you also put that back out into the world. I know about your work with Peace Prince and Mm -hmm. um Will you talk a little bit about that? I know we're yeah, going to talk you know, again. Did, but... I didn't. It's funny because when you asked about my accomplishments and things, uh, I for whatever reason, I don't often think about. Um, I mean, I have like a long list, right? Before we started this interview, I showed you um, a framed photograph that TEDx gave me. Um, that was a talk about prisons and how to improve the prison system. I, I work on the board of directors for Peace Prince, which is an organization in Buffalo, a nonprofit. That helps returning citizens find jobs, find employment, find support systems, uh, housing. I I work on the advisory board to the Erie County jails. Um, And so we've gotten a number of programs into the prisons in Buffalo. I do all that stuff. I, I was in Pelican Bay. I was visiting Pelican Bay, which is one of the worst prisons in the country. 
And I was in their solitary confinement unit as a volunteer doing programming. And a, an inmate asked me, why, like, why would you come here? Why, why in God's name would you fly from New York to California to come and be in this place of all places? And I really, really thought about it, Joe. And I thought, because I needed somebody to come for me and somebody came for me, right? Grace was given to me through human form. And the best thing that I can do with that gift is to give it back to as many people as possible as often as I can. Mm-hmm. And you're doing it. And you're doing it. So you learned a lot about the power of thought and the power of action covered with, coupled with thought because you can think all day long, but if you don't do something different. I'd like for you to come back and let's talk about that like in terms of what it took in marrying your thoughts and your actions um, and the steps along the way. So I I would like to have you come back and let's talk about the turnaround. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I so appreciate you. And we'll see you again. Thanks, Joanne. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I hope you got tools that you'll actually use and share. Subscribe if you haven't already. I add new and relevant leadership learning all of the time. If you haven't visited the Smichael Speaks YouTube channel, check it out. There's all sorts of new content. All of this is virtual leadership learning that will help you soar.